are very aware that we are candidates to be first fruits of the resurrection when Christ returns. That's been preached over and over and over through the years. <clears throat> but I want to consider some specific aspects of this today. Uh, let's begin in Leviticus 23. Strange place to begin, huh? Leviticus 23, verse 17. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenths deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the eternal. Down in verse 20. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. Now, when the harvest came, the first fruits had to do with all types of harvest, and they were brought raw, right out of the field. Later, they were prepared, baked with leaven. Interesting, isn't it, that 50 days ago we were in the middle of the days of unleavened bread, and leaven pictured sin. But the analogy changes by the time you get to Pentecost, and now leaven pictures holiness in the first fruits, completely opposite of what it was before. The first fruits are very special to God. I want to read uh, Ezekiel now, chapter 48. Ezekiel 48, and in verse 14. Speaking of the first fruits, and they shall not sell of it, neither exchange nor alienate the first fruits of the land, for it is holy to the eternal. So if we can be a first fruit, we are judged as holy before God. It follows, of course, that we should act in holiness in our lives. Romans 8. Romans 8. I'm laying some background here for where we're going to be going a little later on. Romans 8 and verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Something had changed. The whole world had been groaning and travailed in pain until this point, Paul is speaking at a point in his lifetime and a point in the lifetime of the apostles and those who were judged to be first fruits in his day. So something changed there. Keep this in mind. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body, when the first fruits will be redeemed by God. If we bring the finest of our crop before God as first fruits, and that's what they were instructed to do, the very finest they had. They were not to take of that and give something of inferior quality to God and keep the best for themselves, but to bring the very best to God. We're beginning to see a standard laid here for our conduct, for our thinking, for our lives, that it is to be the very best and holy throughout. The whole creation groaned for some time, and even though there was a change, something happened that caused the change, 
even we, as first fruits, still grow because we have not seen the redemption of the first fruits by God as yet. Now let's notice in James one more scripture along these lines. James 1 and verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he's saying here there is an analogy that we are a kind of first fruits. We aren't barley, we aren't wheat, we aren't grapes, but those analogies apply to us. And that is important as we continue into the sermon now, the different analogies that God uses to describe his first fruits. Let's go to John 15, John 15, where he makes one of the most active and wide-spreading analogies, most often used uh, in the Bible, of his people. <clears throat> Here he's speaking to his apostles. I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. So a vine has to produce fruit or else it's gone. And every branch that does bear fruit, he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. And he shows then in verse 3 that we are clean through the word which he had spoken. And that we are to abide in him, verse 4, that we cannot bear fruit of itself or of ourselves except we abide in the vine. Verse 5, the last part, without me you can do nothing. Verse 8, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So if we want to glorify God, that's the way to do it. Now notice his instruction, and this becomes very important as we get into the sermon. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. On the same plane, the same level, the same intensity, the same emotion that Jesus Christ had for them. And he died for them and for you and me. Great, greater love has no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends we as living sacrifices not as a dead sacrifice so that may happen as well you are my friends if you do whatever I command you henceforth I call you not servants for the servant knows not what his Lord does but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my father I have made known to you I shared everything with you so you're no longer in the servant class he says now you're my friends, because you know what I know. You know what the Father gave me. <clears throat> you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. The gardener, the orchard man, the herdsman chooses the first fruit not the other way around. A lot of people think they found the Lord. But that is not the case. They're getting the cart before the horse there. He chooses the first fruits. And we can be thankful if we are being chosen. Now I want to go back with that laid to Leviticus 19 because this analogy will tie in very well. This isn't of the vine specifically here, but we'll get back to the vine later. 
Leviticus 19 <coughs> and beginning in verse 23. This has to do with fruit trees. And when you shall come into the land, and shall have planted all manner of trees for food, then you shall count the fruit thereof as uncircumcised. So the analogy of the first fruits goes to all kinds of fruit trees, because they have varying characteristics, and we can learn from the various trees. Three years shall it be as uncircumcised to you, it shall not be eaten thereof. Now when fruit trees are planted, it's very, very rare that they produce anything the first year at all. And if they do, it's usually small and knotty and not much count. The second year, they don't produce much either. And so on, as well as the third. So, it's basically unfit for use. And Christ says, count it as uncircumcised, not part of Israel, not part of the first fruits, but to be, perhaps, plucked off and thrown away even because that's generally what they did. The, the tree needed the strength in those first three years to begin to produce greater fruit later on. So the tree did not put much strength into the fruit itself if it had any fruit. Therefore, it was common to go in as soon as the bud was set in the spring on new trees and pluck it off and throw it away, use it for fertilizer, whatever because the fruit was not really fit to use and the tree did not yet have its strength. But in the fourth year, verse 24, all the fruit thereof shall be holy to praise the Lord withal. And he set the fourth year's crop aside for himself. It was not to be eaten by the general populace. Verse 25, And in the fifth year shall you eat of the fruit thereof, <clears throat> that it may yield to you the increase thereof. I am the Lord your God. So in the fifth year, it could go into general usage, but not before. I think it is a very interesting parallel to look at the history of mankind and compare it to what we just read here in Leviticus 19. Um, you'll see that it kind of fits. I don't know whether God intended it exactly this way, but I want to use this analogy for our purposes today and see what you think of it. <clears throat> the first planting was from Adam to Noah, and it produced very, very little fruit for the kingdom of God. In fact, it was virtually worthless, and that whole era was essentially plucked off and died shriveled up and died, went away, drowned in the flood. Now God <coughs> has told us not to partake of any of the fruit, but he can, through miracles, make a few exceptions. And I think those exceptions could be easily seen as Abel, Enoch, Noah. Maybe there were a few others, but not very many. That God has in his sovereignty the capacity to do that. He also changed the birth order of Israel, taking Reuben out and putting Ephraim in as the firstborn. So God has that prerogative, but he does not give that to us. So the first section of man's history was basically dropped on the ground if anything was produced much at all, except for those miraculous exceptions. Now the second period we might examine would be from Noah after the flood as mankind began to rebuild 
to Moses and the Promised Land. <clears throat> That's the next big juncture of a change in how God was dealing with people. And it began with Moses to bring the people out. But what happened in the wilderness? The fruit was not produced. The marriage, using another analogy, did not work. Christ had to wind up divorcing. That is, if there was any fruit the second year, basically it was plucked and dropped as well and produced nothing. Only two out of the original number, not even including Moses, went into the promised land. Caleb and Joshua only. There were a few, again, notable exceptions in that period from Noah to Moses. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. A few of the patriarchs that God set aside as first fruits as well. <clears throat> but essentially that second period was worthless as far as producing much fruit. Then you have the cycle where Israel in the promised land departed from God and went back into captivity. And from there you have essentially a period of confusion, every man leaning to his own understanding, uh, kings and judges and sometimes not even a man that they had to lead. On and on it went until there was hardly anything left except some very pharisaical Jews at the time Christ was born. That's the third period of time that we're considering. Very, very little food was produced then. Again, only exceptions like David and the prophets and a few others, Ruth, Esther, Rahab, just a few that God preserved for himself. So through his miracle and his sovereignty, he could do that, but basically it was a lost period of time again, <clears throat> that third period of time. Not much there for the end-time harvest of the first fruits. Then we come to the fourth great period of man's experience, and that was from the time of Christ until the end of the age. And we're sitting on empty as far as the end of this age is concerned now. So we're right at the end of that period of time, the fourth. Now this, this is interesting, because a change did come. Up until this time, as we read, the whole earth groaned. But then a change came, and he began a different kind of work. We even still groan, because the redemption is not fully here as yet. But there's been a change. There's a hope now. There have been many, many, many thousands of first fruits laid in their graves awaiting the resurrection who have qualified for the kingdom of God. The fourth year, God began to reproduce the first fruits, of which there will be 144,000, Revelation 14.4. These are the first fruits. So we see a real change here. This is to be different. The fourth year is to be holy to God, sanctified, consecrated, set aside for his use. Now what is the fifth one? Well, there's the millennium, a thousand-year period of rest, when salvation will be open to all mankind that has survived. So then it switches, you see, in that fifth period to a general harvest that can be used by anyone. The great fall harvest, Herbert Armstrong called it. Interesting how it fits together. <clears throat> then after that, you have one more 
great full harvest, the great white throne judgment. But there again, it falls in the sixth year. So from the fifth year on, it's general usage. Salvation is open to everyone. But up until that time, that the fifth year harvest occurs, it is only open to those whom God consecrates, sanctifies, and sets apart as first fruits in this particular period of time. So the overwhelming majority of the first fruits come from the fourth year, the time when God himself used the fruit. Now I want to change direction here for a little while and use some information that I have used in a sermonette several times, so please pardon me, those of you who heard the sermonette, but I think you'll see how this fits into this entire picture of what happened at the end of the third harvest and the beginning of the fourth year crop. What was the setting there? Well, the Jews were ruling in Israel, and the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and so on. And Christ looked upon them as absolute, utter, and total failures. He called them serpents, a generation of vipers to their face. He had little time to say about those leaders of Israel because they were not producing good fruits. They had not produced any first fruits to speak of, if any at all. And they were a very degenerate group of people. Let's see that in Colossians 2. <clears throat> Colossians 2. They had virtually ruined everything. Colossians 2. And let's begin in uh, verse 14, I think it is, I want. Now he's speaking to the first fruits at the church of Colossae, and he's speaking about what they had come out of in Gnostic Judaism. So the word of God had been synchronized or syncretized with and synchronized, if you can do it, with paganism. And they had made all kinds of do's and don'ts. They had changed everything around. It wasn't as God wanted. So Paul says in verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he put down the powers of this world, the Jews who were in charge, as well as Satan the devil. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in food or drink, or in respect of holy days, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath, which were a shadow of things to come, but the body of Christ. In other words, Gnostic Judaism was out, and the power and authority of the church was in. He gave great power and authority to Peter and the apostles in the ministry thereafter. And that's what Paul is telling them. Don't let these Gnostic Jews beguile you for they have bespoiled virtually everything <clears throat> and are not fit to lead when Paul was asked what advantage then have the Jews he could only come up with one thing chiefly that under them were given the oracles of God to keep and they had kept the words of God the Old Testament fairly faithfully but Christ even wrested that away from them. And the New Testament was written in Greek and Aramaic, not in Hebrew. 
They would not accept him. They were not humble and would not listen to him and change, but instead fought and tried to kill him. So now let's go to Matthew 16, because I think we as a church overall, even in worldwide and all the way back, have never really understood what happened here. <clears throat> that there was a change beginning with this fourth period, major period in man's existence. I gave you the backdrop of what the Jews had done and what they were before Christ in order to get to this. Matthew 16, let's begin in verse 13. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now notice that Christ himself is the one that initiates this conversation. Often they ask him questions. This time he had a specific point to make, and he started the questioning period. Who do men say that I am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But whom say you that I am? Peter answered, who else but Peter in this particular case? The others had given their opinions, but Peter spoke for them, and I think that's significant. said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, these other people are guessing who I am, and they don't know me. They don't know who I am, but you do. Now, where, Peter, did you get that information? You got it from the Father in heaven. You had better remember that, is the implication, as we will see. Never forget where you got this information. And I say to you, <clears throat> that you are Peter and Herbert Armstrong explained this to us decades ago you're the little pebble the little rock and upon this rock I will build my church and he used a different word Petra describing himself as the big rock the stone the whole escarpment below the Dead Sea there that contains Petra is a huge long pile of rocks not just a little pebble. That part we've understood, that Christ was establishing the church upon himself, not upon Peter. I'm sorry, Pope, but you got it all wrong here. Uh, he didn't build the church on you. But the next part, I think we have had difficulty understanding. We've had difficulty explaining. Verse 19, And I will give to you, speaking of Peter, and the ministry before him, the twelve, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That which opens is what a key is. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the Pope and others have interpreted this to mean that they can make any decision they want. They can change the Sabbath to Sunday. Um, they can change the Holy Spirit to a person and have a trinity. They can have hell and they can have uh, purgatory. They can just have anything they decide to bind or loose on this earth. 
Uh, was God giving that kind of power to Peter? Someone pointed out to me, and then suddenly it just clicked in, that there's a different and I think better translation of this verse. And you'll find it in both Williams and Amplified. Some of you might even have Amplified in front of you at the moment. Where it says, Whatever you bind on earth must be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth must be loosed in heaven. In other words, I'm not giving you the power to loose or bind anything except that which is from heaven. Remember where you got the truth. It was from the Father. And don't ever forget it. The scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35 They could not bind or loose anything that was not bound or loosed by scripture. There were a few exceptions made to that. Perhaps 1 Corinthians 7 was one. Where Paul said, Not I, or not the Lord, but I. But Christ, in that particular instance, accepted that because it did fit in, actually, with what he had said in the past. And he made it part of Scripture to show that. <clears throat> but essentially, I think that is the correct translation. Don't you dare bind or loose anything unless it is bound or loosed in heaven. And think very carefully about that. Now, the context shows us that. It wasn't but a few verses later, verse 23, where he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Does that sound like he'd just given him power to do anything he wanted to do? What about Acts 10? Peter had grown up to look upon the Gentiles as dogs. That was the backdrop of his life. You didn't eat with them. You didn't speak to them. You walked around them as they were lying injured in the road. You had nothing to do with them. Now, if Peter had had the power to bind or loose anything, he would have said, we'll never have Gentiles in the church of God. But Christ showed him in a vision, three times dropped it, finally Peter began to get the message that I'm not to call a Gentile unclean, or any man unclean. So I think that one example shows he did not have that kind of power at all. But God was, at the same time, giving great authority to the apostles. He just wanted to be sure they used it right, that they did not become presumptuous and overstep their bounds. And we've seen abuses along those lines in the church in recent years as well. But we didn't understand this or didn't follow it properly. Now, <clears throat> I want to go to chapter 18 because this gets down more to the crux of where we're heading because we have the same translation problem in Matthew 18. And we need to understand it as well as Matthew 16, showing what God has done in the church and how we are to use what God has given us. Let's begin in Matthew 17, actually, and verse 24. When they were come to Capernaum, they who received tribute money came to Peter and said, Does not your master pay tribute? He said, yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him or restrained him, saying, What do you think, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? 
of their own children or of strangers? Peter said to him, of strangers. Jesus said to him, then are the children free? Our allegiances in heaven were ambassadors from there. We're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So we are not in that sense duty-bound. Nevertheless, he said, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go here to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first comes up, and when you have opened his mouth, you shall find a piece of money that take and give to them for me and you. So he said, even though we are of a different government, we honor them lest we offend them. Now that's a pretty big order, isn't it? He's telling us there not to offend the authorities of this world, not to offend the people of this world. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said, even your enemies you are to love. Even your enemies to love. Now it is with that that we begin chapter 18. At the same time, so in conjunction with this, the disciples came the disciples to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now they hadn't gotten the message, obviously. He said, Don't even offend the world. And yet here they were trying to see who was the most important, and any time someone tries to become important above others, lift himself up above others, he tends to cause offense, doesn't he? I mean, it's just natural. I'm better than you are. Well, people take offense at that. So they hadn't gotten the picture. Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me, but whoso offends shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. Read of woes in Revelation. It's not a good place to be. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And then he talks about getting rid of members of our body, any part of us that might offend someone else, to be very, very careful. Verse 10, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then he relates the story of the hundred of the ninety-nine in the fold and the one out. And now he leaves the ninety-nine and goes and takes care of the one little lost, cold, frightened one caught in the bushes or in the ravine and subject to wolves and bears. And he loved that one and cared for it more than the ninety-nine that went not astray. So if one of our number apparently is astray or is hurt or is lost or is in trouble, God's attention is really on that one. He cares more for it than the 99 that seem to be okay. But sometimes we tend to pick on the one that is down, don't we? He says, 
Be very, very careful about that. Even so, verse 14, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. See the context now of where this is headed? All right, let's continue. Verse 15, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. So with the background of the little child, the millstone, the 99 and 1, Christ begins his dissertation about personal difficulties and offenses that someone might perpetrate against you. And notice that the whole focus here is gaining that brother back. This has been misused, twisted, and abused so, so often in God's church where it is quoted and the way it is used is, well, I've got to go to him a lot. Well, it isn't very often, but if, I mean, anybody that even uses this, usually they just run to the preacher and tattle. That's the way it's been for the last 50, 60 years and well, not that long in my experience, but 45 or more anyway of what I've seen. But if they do use it, they say, well, I've got to go to him first, and if he won't listen to me, I can't get rid of him. And if I take two or three witnesses and he won't listen, I still can't get rid of him. I've got to take it to the church. And then I can get rid of him. Well, that's an abuse to be used in that way to say this person has offended me and whatever it takes I will get rid of them that's not what Christ was talking about the whole object of this lesson is to gain that brother back do everything within our power keeping it on the very lowest level we can just one on one not telling anybody else about the offense that is Christ's instruction to us one of the most frequently ignored instructions that God has for us. Because we all offend in our tongue. And it is so easy to tell somebody else other than the person involved. But this is pretty serious in here in Matthew 18. I mean, millstones and drowning. Kind of serious. And you know the rest of the story, the one or two witnesses. I've already recited it, so I won't, uh, I won't go through that. But let's skip down to verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and vice versa. This again, I think, is a poor translation, and Williams and Amplified are correct. In relationship to this one who is offended you had better be sure that the decision you render in his case is bound in heaven or is loosed in heaven. Do not lean to your own understanding, in other words. Be sure you consult me. Be sure you do it according to Scripture. Be sure you don't destroy this little one and cause offense back the other direction. Be sure you don't destroy the little one that is lost that is the whole force of this context and I believe it indicates that the translation is correct to be very very careful 
that you make the same decision I would make, Christ says, based on Scripture and based on mercy and love and kindness and gentleness to these little ones that I love. Verse 20, but where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now this one has been wrested completely out of context by a lot of people who can try to justify their church of two or three. But fruit does not grow in twos and threes. Fruit grows basically in clusters, especially grapes. And to say two or three can gather and form their own church I think is probably twisting this completely out of what Christ intended because Hebrews tells us not to forsake the assembling ourselves together, especially as the end draws near. Especially! And we're near the end. But this context is about two or three of you getting together and making a decision about a brother and that I will be with you, but be very, very careful to render righteous and loving and kind judgment that's the context now, Peter still didn't get the point verse 21 then came Peter to him and said Lord I understand what you're saying I'm paraphrasing uh, how many times should I forgive that brother seven yeah he thought he was being pretty generous there seven times Jesus said to him I say not to you till seven but until seventy times seven Infinity, 490 times, if you take it literally. But for a brother to offend against you 490 times, let's say in the course of the day, uh, is infinity. That is the context of what he's talking about. We are judged as first fruits, or certainly at least as candidates for first fruits. Many were called, few are now being chosen as first fruits. 144,000, and that is all, Revelation 14.4. Therefore, he is telling us we must be very, very careful how we address the first fruits, because they are holy to God, they are sanctified, they are consecrated, and during this short period of time in man's history, he's selecting the vast majority of the first fruits from those he has called. And if we offend and cause one of those little ones to slip or to slide away or to be lost, our judgment will be horrible. This is a pretty severe warning God gives us here. Now let's go back to the grape analogy. And I want to use that uh, for most of the rest of the time here. First of all, let's go back to, uh, to John 16. This is the one that I fouled up in my last sermon. I, I wrote down Matthew 16 because I'd just given a sermonette on Matthew 16 that day. And uh, I had written it in my notes. I meant John 16 because I was talking about Matthew 24 and how the love of many would wax cold, that we would betray one another to death. And I wanted to go immediately then to John 16, and I wrote it down wrong and, and blew it. But I want to read it now. John 16 right after the chapter we read earlier about the vine and how we must have great love for one another. These things have I spoken to you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, yes, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. 
And these things will they do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, he told Peter earlier, remember, in Matthew 16, the Father told you. Well, the Father didn't tell these people. But these things have I told you that when the time, not if, when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And it came to them, and it's coming to us here at the end. Notice verse 32. Behold, the hour comes, yes, is now come, that you shall be scattered. Of course, the first offense came. They were taking Christ away, and the apostles all scattered. And the early New Testament church was scattered by apostasy not long thereafter. It didn't last any longer than this era of the church has lasted, essentially from, say, the 30s to the 90s. And here we had from 1930-ish until 2000-ish. So this one has actually lasted a little longer, perhaps even in that one. But now we are being scattered. Every man to his own and shall leave me alone. Every man pretty much is beginning to lean to his own understanding in this day and age. These things have I spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Well, he'll get us through this one way or another, but we are in the process of being scattered right now. Why? Because we're not producing the right fruit. Isaiah 5 says that his vine, his vineyard produced wild fruit. How we judge others is very, very critical. He tells us in John 15 to love one another. He tells us in Matthew 5, verse 44, Matthew 6, verse 14 through 15, and Matthew 7, 1 through 2. I'm not going to turn to those for sake of time. But in those scriptures, he tells us that if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. And how we judge others is how we ourselves will be judged. Tit for tat, what you sow, you also will reap. And how we treat one another as first fruits is precisely how God is going to judge us. To me, that is a scary concept. Then God says, my word will not return to me void. I will produce good fruit with my word. So he took this symbolism of word, the water, and made fine wine of it. <coughs> he has put his word in us, and he is going to make fine wine out of us. So you have that to look forward to. Let's see this in Numbers 18.12. I want to make sure that you comprehend that this analogy is valid. <clears throat> Numbers 18 and verse 12. Speaking here now of the wave offering, the first fruits, Pentecost, in verse 11. Now in verse 12. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the wheat, the first fruits of them which they shall offer to the Lord, them have I given you. So they brought in the grapes, raw, and wine had to be made, along with bread, and, and all the harvest had to be prepared for God. So God has taken raw materials, us, just grapes, 
clusters of grapes that he's put together now. And he is going to make fine wine of us to prepare us as a finished product for himself. That is his word, the water that begins the process. The, the highest and finest use of a grape is wine. You can eat grapes, but have you ever had anybody after dinner or before dinner say, well, let's retire to the living room for some grapes? No, a fine glass of wine is a precursor or with the meal or maybe after the, the meal, maybe brandy, whatever, strong drink, which came at the feast as well. Wine is very much a part of Christ's sacrifice. Now, to make wine, grapes must be what? Bruised. Crushed. Stomped. Remember the song, Stomp Them Grapes? Sometimes we feel bruised and crushed and stomped, don't we? By the rigors of life and the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties of living in this world. Matthew 16:21. Let me turn back there just briefly. Matthew 16, verse 21. Because it ties these scriptures together with this analogy. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show to his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He must be stomped, crushed, bruised. And Peter wanted none of that. That's when Christ told him, You're an offense to me. I must be bruised. I must be killed. Accept it. And we also must be bruised to some degree as Christ was bruised. We have to be homogenized into his purpose of making wine. You see, we're individual grapes in the cluster. But as we read in Matthew 18, we are in and parcel and part of one another. We cannot, as individual grapes, say, just you and me, Lord. Or the rest of these grapes in this cluster are not as good as I am. There is a rotten one there. Look at it. We cannot do that. To make fine wine, we have to be stomped together. We have to give up ourselves for our brother. To lead a life of living sacrifice. Contrast that with Matthew 24 about the love of many waxing cold and betraying one another to the death. Christ told us there when he was talking to the grapes in Matthew 15 to love one another to blend all the flavors into one to be aged together in perfection that's how you make fine wine to blend the flavors of each grape together we have to give up do we not our autonomy we have to give up our ego our vanity our self pride and be homogenized with our brothers together until we are one in Christ That is the only way you can make good wine. Now I want to go back to Isaiah 53 and pick up a couple of thoughts here about Christ and what he went through for us. Isaiah 53. You see, Pentecost comes after Passover, and it's tied to it because 50 days 
and you count 50 days from the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread and you come to Jubilee you come to freedom you come to opportunity to live forever without bad consciences without sin without guilt but in true freedom in the word of God in the way of God Isaiah 53 verse 5 but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed so he began a healing process with the New Testament church through the Holy Spirit and his word whereby the bruises could be healed notice John 19 now this is a very interesting tie-in John 19 well if I can find John John 19 now this follows in the part that we read at the Passover time about Christ being the vine and we're the branches and how he loves us and how he wants us to be one as he and the Father are homogenized together to think alike to be alike John 19 uh, and let's begin in verse 28 after this Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled said I thirst he was about to die at this point and he knew there was a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled, so he said, I thirst. Had they given him water, I believe he would have refused it. Had they given him fine wine, he would have refused it. What did they give him? Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up the spirit not wine vinegar what happens when you try to make fine wine you go through the process of the fermenting the leavening the preparation and you bottle it or put it in the wine skin and later on maybe two, three, five, ten years later you open the bottle two hundred years later in some cases you open the bottle and you sniff it vinegar now, vinegar might be used as a medicinal thing if distilled properly and so on. I'm, I'm not, that's not part of this. But when your intent is to make fine wine and it turns out to be vinegar, you say it and you throw it out. Now, Christ's intent has always been to produce fine character, fine wine as part of his first fruits as we saw in Numbers 18 but the batches kept turning out bad vinegar from Adam to Noah from Noah to Moses from Moses to Christ but at Cana of Galilee he said I am going to begin now to make fine wine turn this thing around so on that stake, the Protestants I've read have tried to say, well, the vinegar and so on killed pain or whatever. I forget now exactly what they say about it to spiritualize this away. But no, it was vinegar, and it tasted terrible. And hyssop is used to purge. Remember David saying, cleanse me with, with hyssop. It wasn't a good thing. And I'll prove that to you right now. Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Here's what Christ thought of it, not what 
the Methodists thought of it. Verse 19. <clears throat> you have known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. That's what he thought about it. Our sins for vinegar to Jesus Christ. Our mistreatment of one another is vinegar to Jesus Christ. By this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That is how our judgment is based. The individual grapes, brethren, must be mixed together. They must lose their individual identity for the good of the whole. To the bruised grapes are added a fermentation agent, and it goes throughout, and it makes it all of one flavor, the flavor of God. Now, ultimately, I'm not saying we have to disappear as individuals entirely, because we're going to reappear. Maybe we can be then referred to not as a grape, but as a bottle of wine, a bottle of fine wine, or a wineskin full of fine wine, because we will be in the kingdom of God as the fine wine of the first fruits. But we will be part and parcel of one another. We may be different vessels, chosen vessels, and different in that sense. But we will be part and parcel with one another, having been homogenized together in this life as the cluster of grapes was put in and stomped and bruised and made liquid together and then made fine wine and bottled in different vessels. So you and I cannot stand alone. We must become part and parcel with, wrapped up in the lives of each other, living sacrifices to each other, and never to be separated again, to be one as far as the Father and the Son are one. Now the contrast that is, is made in the Bible of good wine and bad wine. Let's go to Revelation 14. And here I'm going to take a little of that time that John so graciously gave me and finish this up hopefully in the next ten minutes or less. Revelation 14. <clears throat> I quoted verse 4 before. Speaking of these virgins, spiritually speaking, these are they which follow the Lamb who, wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So the groaning will stop as the redemption actually occurs, and Christ, having bought us, claims us as his own. So this is the delineation of the first fruits. But notice verse 8. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
Verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. So he contrasts the fine wine that, as we shall see, he is willing to imbibe of and drink to the wine of fornication of this world. See, wine can be used for good, it can be used for evil. In a barroom setting, it can lead to all kinds of sin and fornication. If used properly among God's people, it is a wonderful thing. Notice in Deuteronomy 32 in this connection. Deuteronomy 32, among the blessings and cursings that come to Israel for obedience or disobedience. Deuteronomy 32, and I want to pick it up here in verse 31. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons, and the cruel venom of asps. <coughs> to go with the wine of the fornication of this world is a poison filled with the wrath of God as we've already seen and wine cannot be mixed either uh, let's see that in Proverbs 9 Proverbs 9 it has to be the pure thing that Christ made and is making Proverbs 9 verse 2 she has killed her beast she has mingled her wine she has also furnished her table well this is speaking here about uh, about wisdom. Maybe it doesn't quite fit the analogy that I'm talking about here. Let's go to 20, 23 and verse 30. See if that makes more sense here in what I'm trying to say. They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine, look not upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup. It needs to be mature. It needs to be finished. It can't be mixed with brandy or whatever else and be made palatable. It has to be properly taken care of. That's the point I, I wanted to make. Wisdom is looking at a different one there in Proverbs uh, 9. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 10.21, and this will nail this thought down. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. You can't mix the two together. You can't be in between. You can't have part of the wine of her fornication and part of the wine of God. The separation has to be total and complete. Now let's see in Judges 9.13 how God looks upon wine. Because as we've seen here from Numbers and these other analogies, that Christ is in the process of creating fine wine, the very best. Uh, Joshua, Judges 9. Verse 13. And the vine said to them, Should I leave my wine, which cheers God and man? The fine wine is there for the very purpose of cheering not only man, but God. God is cheered by it. He enjoys it. He, he gets pleasure from wine. 
All right, Matthew 26 and verse 29. We get right here to the Passover service itself. And after they had taken the bread and the wine, the wine representing his blood, his forgiveness of us, the first fruits. He said in verse 29, I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So even though wine cheers God's heart, Christ said, I will not drink of it again until you are harvested, prepared, and made into fine wine. Even as the type of wine that represented his blood, we are to share that as co-heirs together with Jesus Christ. So fine wine is tied to his sacrifice and our vintage in the kingdom of God. Sometimes people say, let's have a toast. I've heard recently that clinking glasses is pagan. I, maybe it's to drive spirits away or something I heard. I don't know. But since then, when somebody's called for a toast, I've kind of held my glass back a little, not clinked it, because I don't want to do something that might be pagan. But my favorite toast is, may we live together forever in the kingdom of God. I can think of no finer toast but you toast it with wine. Now let's see Revelation 22 now. Revelation 22. We'll wrap this up here very quickly now. Revelation 22. <clears throat> Remember the analogy that I made earlier <coughs> of the different groups of people through six barrels of water or through six eras of man's experience concluding with the great white throne judgment. Notice it here in Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Notice verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is a first come, that whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So you see, after the first fruits are completed in this fourth period of time that we described, you have the millennium and the great white throne judgment in which the doors are thrown open for salvation to all mankind who have survived in the millennium and all those people who lived from Adam on down in the great white throne judgment to have opportunity of salvation thrown wide open to them. And guess who is there as part of it? The bride. The 144,000. The first fruits, those who have been distilled and filled with the character, the mind, the thoughts, the emotions of God. They are the ones who are there, and they are part and parcel with Jesus Christ and his spirit, opening up salvation in the millennium so that that general harvest might occur. So that which was thrown away in the first, second, and third year is resurrected and given opportunity at salvation. And he starts again where? With the Word. The Word of God then has to be combined with these old grapes from the old vintage 
that dried up and blew away in the first, second, and third period of time, and even into the fourth, because he only called a few, even in that fourth period of time. A few select, special, precious, set aside, sanctified, consecrated people. What an incredible blessing it is that you and I have the understanding that we have opportunity to be a part of that bride of Christ, the 144,000. And that Christ will drink of us in the kingdom of God as his bride. He will have produced fine wine that cheers at that point the heart of God and man. And those in the millennium and the great white throne judgment will be cheered by our having made it and throwing open the door to salvation to them. Revelation 4.11 I will only quote. It says, For you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. We're here to give God pleasure. He enjoys fine wine. It cheers his heart. And the first fruits have to be prepared as part of that. Now let's notice in closing now, Romans 11, one more scripture, Romans 11 and verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, that's us, brethren. We are called to be holy, to be the finest grapes, to cluster together, to be made into the finest wine that man has ever known and that God has ever known. The lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, the clump of roots at the bottom of the vine, so are the branches. He is the root, he is the vine. We are the branches. Call to be holy. Call to be the very best. Call to be the choicest of the crop. As he walks through those that he has called, he is choosing and selecting right now his first fruits. And we have opportunity to be chosen if we will love one another and love him, not offend one another but help one another and be living sacrifices, then we will be living wine to cheer the heart of God and man. End of transmission.